Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Clinical Pharmacist podcast. Today, we've got a really interesting topic. It's all about the IP qualification and beyond. We've got a lovely guest uh, with us today, Amina Ali, who is an experienced GP pharmacist working in primary care since 2019. She's also an independent prescriber currently working in the Enfield area. Amina is also undertaking an additional master's qualification to become an advanced clinical practitioner. And she's also been a guest lecturer at uh, King's University um, to talk about her area of expertise, which is older people, frailty and polypharmacy. Uh, welcome, Amina. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rima. It's our pleasure. And of course, we've got my lovely colleague, Sarah, um, who is also uh, an experienced pharmacist and also an, an independent prescriber. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, thank you. Right. Okay. So let's get straight into it. Let's start with Armin, if you don't mind, if you can tell us a little bit about your career progression, how you developed, you know, as a pharmacist in primary care and how you got to where you are now. It's probably safe to say I haven't really had an orthodox progression in terms of my career because I've had babies in between and I've kind of interrupted all of that. But I have probably jumped a few steps just simply because of, you know, the way I've approached things and, and, and the, the way I am in my role. And um, so I started off actually in hospital. I did my pre-rent in hospital, loved it, got really, really good training there. Um, and alongside that, since I've been in uni, I've always worked in community. So I've always had that on the side. So once I qualified, I continued to work in community alongside anything else I was doing. So whilst I was in hospital, I was still working on community. Um, on the weekend and so I spent a lot of time uh, in hospital and in community services as well and that's when I first got into uh, frailty and older people because of working in the community you tend to deal with mostly um, the older population in those kind of services um, and then I worked in interme intermediate care again that was a lot of older people in frailty and that is what then led me into primary care because when I was working in intermediate care I worked very closely with um, a GP practice who covered our, our medical services within our intermediate care units for regional interplanetary as a GP Um So the first role I got, believe it or not, in pharmacy was as a lead pharmacist for a wonderful team that worked in Greenwich. Uh, we covered about 23 practices, so we covered quite a lot of area. We had about seven to eight pharmacists um, with, three, with three seniors. I was one of the seniors. I helped co-manage that group and I learned an awful lot during that period, I also completed my IT during that period as well. And most of my experience of primary care came from that role. And then I decided I wanted to return back to Enfield World um, and I have been continuing in primary care since then. Okay, fantastic. Asara? So obviously you decided to do IP yeah. as a lead pharmacist. Yeah. Well, I have to. So it would be good to find out basically um, how you found like the supervision process was like while you're doing your IP, how much support did you have around you? And did that influence how soon you were able to use your IP once you qualified and how you actually used your IP? So I think right now, well, a lot of pharmacists out there are quick jumping on the gun to get their IP done because soon all pharmacists are going to be coming out of university, you know, ready with that qualification. Some people get their IP done. I don't think they'll know exactly when they should start prescribing, like how they should start prescribing. Do they only prescribe in the area that they, you know, specialized in? Is it safe for them to do so? Do they need more training? You know, do they have the support? There's so many questions out there. I think what people should be trying to avoid and probably want to avoid is using it too quickly, making mistakes. Um, 
or like you know not using it at all because it's like at the same time why did you gain this qualification if you're not prepared to use the skill so it'd be good to know like your experience um because you from what i know about you you know you are very confident in your prescribing you've been a prescriber for like what three years now hmm. how did you overcome that um you know challenge basically and how have you found it i think it's really important to stress and your confidence will come from the level of supervision that you receive but whilst you're doing your IP, it's really, really important to select a DMP, that's a, doc, that's a GP or a doctor, who is going to support you and he's going to have the time to actually spend it with you to build on your knowledge and your experience to be able to be a confident IP. Okay. Uh, as a co-manager of a team of several pharmacists, we were covering many surgeries and I can tell you there's a lot of variability out there about how much support each pharmacist was getting on their DNP. So it was, you know, our pharmacists were really lucky in the sense that they had asked to see the pharmacist to kind of supplement um, that support. And, you know, as seeing is go in there and speak to the users as they help, you know, by the way, you know, do you think spend a little bit of extra time with this person or can we, you know, negotiate a, a schedule or whatever? You know, we had the confidence and the authority to do that, but a pharmacist are working on their own doing an IP off their own back may not be able to have those conversations and negotiate in that way. And you need to be really sure that you want to do the IP at that particular place and that you're going to get the support to do it. Okay. Because when you're doing your IP, the clinical expertise is not taught to you. The clinical expertise comes from your vocational experience, what you're doing on your job, what you're learning from your GPs and your other healthcare professionals working as an MDT and I have to say trial and error sometimes, you know, a lot of medicine is trial and error unless we have guidelines and protocols and things that you have to follow, but at the end of the day, it's no clinical judgment. It's just a bit that I think pharmacists struggle with a little bit. When you think about the way a pharmacist works, you know, we're almost a safety net for everyone else, aren't we? We're at the end of the process. You produce it from us, produce a prescription, you're there and you're clinically screening that, that prescription. The ultimate person who's responsible for prescribing it is still the prescriber. You know, and you can get into hot water if you haven't screened it properly, but the ultimate responsibility of prescribing that medicine lies as a prescriber. Then you have to put yourself into both shoes. If you are the prescriber, you are legally responsible and accountable for every decision that you make. If a decision goes awry, you need to be able to justify clinically why you made that decision. And you can't rely on, oh, but the doctor always does it that way. You know, not every patient is going to fit into those neat little boxes, nice guidance for hypertension, da, 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 you know. You have to justify why you did what you did. The only way to get to a point where you feel confident and, and, and comfortable and competent to do that is by practice and really, really good supervision. You can't just get in your IP and be like, yay, I'm going to run out there and prescribe everything. Legally, you can. Legally, there's nothing stopping you prescribing fentanyl to a little old lady um but do you know the effects of fentanyl on you know you need you need to know these things before you prescribe you need to anticipate what might happen to that patient and you need to safety of that patient prescribing is not just about finding a prescription there's so much more that comes with it there's the assessment the diagnosis the investigations your review of the investigation what's your impression what do you think is is going on and how are you going to monitor this patient and follow them up? So let's say now after you've qualified, was there anything else you did? So aside from like having a supervisor, 
um, that was really helpful and good. And you learned a lot from the clinical team around you. Like, did you sort of invest in any training yourself? Did you go out and do some reading? Did you put time in for areas that weren't your specialist area during your course? So did you invest in training to kind of help upskill yourself and give yourself the knowledge to safely prescribe as well once you'd qualified? Yeah. So what usually happens with the night B, and, and it was the case when I did it, is you choose an area. Okay. So when you're doing your qualification, your qualification is specific to a certain area, a certain area of competency. Okay. So for example, for me, it was hypertension. Now, hypertension is a, is a tiny part of, of, of the area that provides an empowering care. But that is only to test your competence because there's no way for any institution to be able to say you're competent in prescribing everything. So you have to nail it down. You have to show that you are able to follow a process. You are able to follow a system that you have a thought process of how you clinically reason something. So you choose a area of competency and you work really, really hard to get really, really good in that area and show your competence in that area. But once you're qualified, legally, you can prescribe anything. Okay. So if you are going to prescribe something that's outside of the competency that you've learned, then of course you need to go out of your way to get that knowledge if that means speaking to a doctor if that means looking something up if that means looking at what the local policy is what the national policy is what the evidence base is you need to be able to justify why you're going to prescribe something so when you say oh what do you do when you become a prescriber how do you get into it i would say first of all before you become a prescriber you should already, already be practicing so if you're in primary care and you're assessing patients you would have the authority on the system to be able to generate a prescription you just can't sign it okay so that prescription is going to be signed by a doctor at the end of the day you but you're generating that prescription so already you're getting the model this is how i'm going to behave as a prescriber so that's how you're getting your practice in but you've got the safety net that the gp is going to sign that prescription okay so really, you should already be having advanced conversations with the GP to say, are you happy for me to prescribe opioids? Are you happy for me to prescribe this? What limitations do you want to put in place? You know, do you want me to do any additional um, training to be able to prescribe this so that you can safely sign prescriptions? Because let's be realistic. Every prescription that you generate, the GP is not going to look at with a fine-tooth comb. They're trusting you. So if you're going to ask someone else to sign a prescription, you better be for sure you've done it right. You know. So that's where you build up your experience, you build up your knowledge. And what I would what I would say is, don't be in a rush. Don't be in a rush. Don't see patients that are above your competency or or are presenting with symptoms that you have no idea what they are, or you know dealing with a long term condition that you haven't you know updated the knowledge on. You know if you're not good at diabetes, don't do diabetes patients. You know don't do things because you're under pressure to do them. Do things because you know that you can do them well, or at least you can get help to do them. When you first qualify, you, you need to take easy steps to build up your confidence. Start off with the area of competency that you've got in your eyes. And then you start to move into areas where you're not as confident, but you, there's plenty of reading, there's plenty of resources, there's plenty of guidelines out there. Um, and in primary care, so you have access. Actually, yeah. I have a question in, for example, endocrinology. You can pick up the phone, call them up, local hospital for advice and guidance. To endocrinologist, you call. You have a service called Global Internet. You call up and you get a endocrinologist who's somewhere in the country. Doesn't have to be a local one, and you can discuss a query and, and that's how you build on your knowledge. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, I remember I uh, specialize in type two diabetes, but my first ever prescription that I signed was ferrous sulfate. 
<laughs> and for me, I think it was, I, I felt competent and I probably, you know, at that time could prescribe in diabetes, but I still felt like I needed like further training. So I, I did start on kind of some simple ailment type things because I felt like these are things we can recommend maybe even as a pharmacist in community or we, we were aware of them back then before we even were prescribers. But um, I suppose like for me to gain confidence, I trained myself up on those sort of things. And I remember Ferris Sulfate being my first one. And then after that, I started actually, I, hypertension was another one that I felt really, really comfortable with. I actually then rebuilt myself back up to diabetes. And I think that was kind of because I wasn't getting enough practice at one point, you know, so I was seeing more hypertension. So I was reading more hypertension guidelines. I was doing, you know, any trainings I could find on hypertension. And then I became comfortable with up titrating patients on, you know, antihypertensive. So I felt like for me, it was like I was doing area by area that were related. So it was like cardiovascular disease. Then I, you know, started doing those. And then I moved on to respiratory. I did some training, read guidelines, understood, you know, the clinical physiology of asthma, like before to understand like how the drugs were working and you know what impact they were having and I learned so much and um, but it enabled me to then feel confident that I was prescribing correctly for patients that was my experience I don't know Runa if you want to if you remember your first M prescription <laughs> um I can't remember actually I did my IP qualification my focus was on asthma so I think uh, I'm gonna just touching back on what you said it's important to have really good uh, DMP so I think I was quite lucky in that sense my supervisor was very supportive so I had a lot of experience actually, you know, seeing a lot of asthmatic patients. So I did mine in asthma. So that was the area that I initially focused on. And since it's, you know, the respiratory area, naturally you would move on to the next thing, which was COPD. And then I think, yeah, probably hypertension was the next one that I moved on to. And then diabetes last. So Sarah, you were quite brave <laughs> to choose diabetes as your yeah. specialist area. It's quite a wide area. Uh, yeah. But yeah, absolutely agree with, um, you know, the advice that both of you have given, very comprehensive advice. So just to chime in on that as well, it's, um, you know, focus on one disease area at a time. Uh, as Amina, you said, there's no need to rush. You know, you're absolutely right in that, you know, gaining the qualification in itself does not provide you with, you know, the clinical skill to uh, prescribe in other disease areas. Um, and even that disease area that you've sort of focused on during your IP qualification, sometimes you may not be, you know, sort of, confident enough to go out and start prescribing you know you have to build yourself up slowly and I think this is probably a big misconception amongst I think especially pharmacists who are not yet in the primary care sector uh, first of all they might think that you can only work in the primary care sector if you have an IP qualification which is a misconception we know that there are you know hundreds of pharmacists working in primary care you know delivering great value as non-IPs so that's number one um, so, and the other common misconception is um, that some pharmacists who are not yet in the primary care sector, they think that if they've got their IP qualification, they can just come in um, and just start prescribing in all sorts of areas. And both of you have, you know, explained that that's not the case. So I think it's really important that, first of all, you don't have to wait until you get your IP qualification. I think it might be, you know, a really good idea if you are interested in, you know, transitioning into this sector come in anyway without your IP qualification, get some experience as a non-prescriber. And there are so many different things you can do as a non-prescriber. You can reauthorize medications, you can do medication reviews, might even be able to do some up and down titrating of the chronic condition. Um, if you're competent in those areas and if the, you know, the lead prescribers in the practice are happy to, for you to do so, because we know that nurses 
um, do that all the time as well. Uh, and that was well before pharmacists came into the picture. But I think, you know, come in, um, you know, not necessarily with your IP qualification. And then once you are in, you might have better, you know, opportunities to actually find a DMP that you like or a DPP who might actually agree to be your um, supervisor. Um, and through that relationship that you developed, you may be able to go on and, you know, apply and for your IP qualification. And then while you're in practice and studying at the same time, you know, everything, because we know sometimes just having all theory is difficult. So if, you, if you're already working in practice, I think you can get so much out of your course. So yeah, that that's the advice that I would give. Amina, any other, any other advice that you would give? I think, you know, it's really important to stress that, look. Pharmacists, are, our nature is that we're quite methodical in the sense that we like to follow SOP, we like to follow guidance. And there's a lot of guidance and policies and protocols out there that we can follow. But when you are an IP, you are autonomous, you are responsible, and you are accountable for your decisions. So blindly following a protocol because that's what the protocol's saying. If it's not clinically appropriate for your patients, it's not justified. You have to get into practice and into the load of being able to make really good clinical decisions and being able to justify about the clinical reasoning. Okay. That's really, really important. You can't get into the mode of saying, well, I gave for recession because that's what the policy saying. How, that's not clinical reasoning and clinical justification. You have to be able to say why that was appropriate on this particular patient. The other thing that's important is communication between you and your colleagues. So uh, that's including your GP. So constantly communicate with your GP where you're at, what you're feeling comfortable with. So what we used to do with our pharmacists is once they got their RP, we would sit down with the pharmacist and we would sit down with their advisor and we'd have this list. And it literally just followed the BMS chapters. And we would say, right, happy to prescribe, exclusion, all this kind of stuff. Literally going through the BNF. I'm not talking paid by paid and public factors mm-hmm. and, and, and drug groups. So if, if, if the IP wasn't confident in prescribing opioids, you would, you would say, you're not confident. Is there any extra work you need to do in this area? Yeah, I need to do this. That's how all detail you need to go. And thirdly, sorry, Runa. I really want people to have the confidence to say no. Okay, this is a skill in itself. Any good doctor worth their salt will say to you, the decision to do nothing sometimes is not only the hardest decision, but it's the best decision for that patient. When that patient comes in and they've already Googled what's wrong with them and they've already Googled what their treatment is and they're asking for it and you assess them and you don't agree with their opinion, you have to be able to have the confidence to say no and justify what you're saying no. Do not feel pressurized to prescribe. Not just from the patient, but from your colleague. So if you come into primary care and you're already an IP and your doctor or your uh, practice manager is saying to you, yes, I, I'd like you to assign all the repeat prescriptions. Remember something, you are legally accountable and responsible for those prescriptions. So it doesn't matter if someone else is consulted and someone else has set that prescription up. If you're signing it, you're responsible. But don't sign other people's prescriptions. Be responsible for your own work. Make that very, very clear when you come into the role um, that, that that's what's going to happen. You'll only be responsible for your own work, your own decisions, your own sign, your own prescriptions. You can do med reviews, that's not a problem. But do not fall under the pressure of signing batch prescriptions for, for other prescribers. 
Yeah, and just to add to that, I think um, if you do have an IP, you know, you have to be careful about what sort of role you're applying for as well and the responsibility that you're taking on. So if you're not confident and you've got no experience in, you know, actually utilizing your your uh, prescribing qualification, I think you need to be careful about what sort of roles you, you apply for. So maybe don't apply for a role uh, that expects you to utilize that, that skill. And also, you know, perhaps you've gone into a job uh, role where... They, you may not have necessarily have replied for that, but because they've later on found out that, oh, you're a prescriber, then they start giving you the, those responsibilities. I think you need to have that conversation with your employers uh, just to let them know that, look, I am a prescriber. However, I'm not yet confident to use that. I just need some time. And maybe just let them know, you know, as you said, provide them perhaps with a list of all the things that you can do, some of the things that you can't do, and maybe even, you know, use this as an opportunity to discuss some of the areas that you'd like a little bit of support with, uh, and they might be happy to, because the more value you could provide the practice, the better it is for them. So sometimes it may just be something as simple as, you know, an hour or two session with, with the GP, and then, you know, you're sort of good to go under their supervision. So you can also use that as an opportunity for further development as well. Yeah. Sarah made a really good point, and it just reminds me of something that my DMP said to me. And he said, he said to me, it's all about exposure. So you, if you're exposed to a particular clinical area over and over and over and over and over again, that's, that's when you get good at it. So seeing one diabetic patient once in a while, you're going to be a bit behind on diabetes because you haven't had more exposure. You haven't seen the different types of diabetes patients there are, you know. You know, the same blood doesn't fit everybody. It, you have to provide person-centered tailoring kind of education. So it's all about exposure. So give yourself a chance to be exposed and to experience and to learn from every single interaction that you have. Um, I know we're focusing on IP right now, but I cannot stress enough. You need to hone your consultation skills, with people. Hone your consultation skills. Because without really good consultation skills, What's the point of your RP? How are you going to get through your assessment? How are you going to get to the point where, you know, the patient is actually, you know, disclosing the right information to you? You may need to be able to ask the right questions in the right way to get the information you need to be able to make that prescribing decision. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, a really good point you make there. And sometimes as pharmacists in the community sector, we sometimes lack that skill because we've just not had that experience. Um, I think a medication review in primary care is absolutely, you know, completely different to, you know, medicine's use review. And so there are some, you know, really great guidance and training out there. So I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. Don't underestimate that skill. It's the foundation and the core of, you know, the the skill that you need in primary care. Um, Okay, Amina. So I know you're currently doing your master's for the advanced clinical practitioner course. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, What's it been like? What sort of skills does it teach you? Because I know not all prescribers actually go on to do that course. Uh, what are some of the benefits of that course? Um, so I'm studying to be an ACP, which is an advanced clinical practitioner. I'm absolutely loving it. And um, being back at you, look at this again. Um, the skills it teaches you, it, it depends on what semester you're in. So the initial semester I did was all about physical assessment still. So this is probably an area where pharmacists do probably that because traditionally, Pharmacists generally don't touch their patients, but as an ACT, you have to. So, you know, you learn how to do a cardiac assessment, respiratory assessment, abdominal assessment, uh, MSK, you know, um, neurological, I could go on. You learn about physical assessment skills, but you also learn about why do you do that? 
So when you're listening to the chest, what is it that you're listening for? What does that sound mean? What does that crackle mean? How that hooks into the clinical pathology and you know, how that then leads on to, you know, your your treatment plan and 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 and, and what we want to do with that patient. Um so that's part of it. The other part of it is to learn and sort of about how do you apply local policies, how do you apply your knowledge of pathology to the way we prescribe and the way that we treat people. And then the other part of the course is all about quality improvement. So I haven't started that bit yet, but it's, it will be about choosing a quality improvement topic and literally just running with it. So um, that in a nutshell is what the ASBP course is. Um, and the reason I chose to do it is because it is a natural progression from what I'm doing. I'm already practicing at, at an advanced level, but I felt like I was prescribing in areas where if I have to do an additional assessment or physically examine a patient, I wasn't competent to do so. So if I'm if I'm going to prescribe bisoprolol for a patient, which is a very common medication, I should be able to listen to the heart now. I should be able to tell. It, you know, if that patient has suddenly got an AF or something, I, mean, I should be able to do that. Um, and that's what tech sort of coming back to me. But if I'm prescribing meditation in these areas and I'm not able to reassess the patient without the prescribing. Um, and that was a question, a personal question I asked myself. And I did feel comfortable because I was prescribing in a, with a really wide scope. And I was also prescribing professionist medicine. Um, and I felt that in order to make my practice safe, I needed to do this course and become more confident in terms of diagnostics, investigation, you know, safety netting, monitoring, all of that kind of stuff in order to be safe in what I do and to keep my patients safe. Okay, thank you. And I think, as you said, you know, physical assessment is a big area that pharmacists lack and this course provides you with exactly that. So I think it's probably really handy for if you're doing something like minor illness clinics um, and some pharmacists might be wondering, are there any alternatives, which from my experience, there are. Um, so the advanced clinical practitioner program it is quite a long program. There are sort of fast track versions where they're focusing just for, you know, minor illness clinics for a prescriber who's gained their IP qualification, where they do focus on physical assessment. You know, it might be a couple of weekends, for example, but it's really intense um, and it's only in just a short period of time. And I think that alone, going with that and, you know, using that information and that knowledge to practice may not be as safe, especially if you don't have GP to supervise your work. So I think if you're not opting for the ACP program and minor illness and physical assessment is the area you want to go into, I think if you are doing a course, just make sure that you've got, you know, a GP supervising you for, for a while, you know, while you're seeing a wide range of conditions, it could be, you know, about three months at least. Um, where the GP can supervise your consultations and the way you work and provide you feedback. So that's an alternative. Um, another thing I'd like to touch upon is some pharmacists are unsure about when they can get their IP qualification. So there used to be a requirement that you need to have two years of relevant practice. However, um, I believe the guidelines have changed recently. So that's no longer a requirement for those of you who are wondering. So the, the requirement for the two years relevant practice is no longer there. However, it does depend on the university provider. Not all providers may have adopted this change. And so you just have to look at the individual university and check what their requirements are. Um, another question uh, that I recently got asked about the IP qualification is if I attain the IP qualification, 
does it boost your earning potential? So I'd like to touch upon this. <laughs> um, I mean, it sounds like you've got a lot to say on this. Um, so you can uh, start. Make no assumptions is all I have to say. Make make no assumptions. There is no automatic career progression due to IP because for everything, for the reasons that we've discussed, just because you have an IP, it doesn't mean that you're all of a sudden going to be able to do all these fantastic things. You have to prove to your organization the value that you are going to add. Back in the time when I did IP, we had to actually prove why we needed to do the IP, what value were we going to add, or what what service is it that we're going to provide that we're going to apply our IP to, and that was part of the application. You don't have to do that anymore. But, you know, the point is still important and it still stands. You were not an IP on Monday, became an IP on Tuesday. What's different? That's what you have to ask yourself. What's different? You're still going to have to learn. You're still going to have to build your competence. You're still going to have to build your confidence. And that's going to take time. So, I, you know, if you want to go in and negotiate, I'm now an IP. I'm prepared to do X, Y, and Z. I think this is worth a little extra X, Y, Z. Have the conversation that's fine. But don't make the assumption that going in there with an IP is going to get you in your family. You have to prove what your IP is going to bring to the organization. Is it what value is it going to bring? And that value will then equate to any financial reward. At the same time, I would say that pharmacists traditionally have been undervalued and probably don't blow their trumpet enough. Um, actually went wrong and um, I would say that if you think you can add value to something ask about it prove it show it um you will see over time how that run is then equated to what we do and naturally there will be a progression the, the only thing I would add differently because I totally agree with you um like when you're in a role and you get the IP it's hard to get that salary increase sometimes However, it will open doors for pharmacists to apply as an IP for IP roles that are usually advertised for, for you know, a higher salary. However, in doing that, you are putting yourself in a position where you can say, I'm a prescriber. I can do all these things that you've listed on the job description and I'm happy to like prescribe from the second I get there. So you've got to like balance that out. So you, I, I definitely think, you know, if you can't get that salary increase where you are now because they don't understand the value of you, um, but you work hard, train yourself up, are able to then prescribe um, in the areas that you're competent in. And then you go to apply for a role maybe outside of where you currently work that will pay you a higher salary based on what you can do competently. Then that's your other way of kind of using that IP to get a, a pay rise. Sometimes you do have to jump from place to place, but don't do it without, you know, having the r right training and, you know, experience because that also will kind of put you in a bit of a deep end where you will be expected to just start prescribing or you might join and say, actually, but I'm not going to prescribe and that will upset the employers as well. So you've got to just, you know, have that balancing act. But yeah, I, I would recommend people to do it, um, but don't do it just for the money, basically. Yeah. It will give you more money eventually if you work hard enough, but it's it's not the reason why you're doing it. That's true. It's, it's all about how you number it. And, and things that we forget is, you know, your insurance is going to go up. Your indemnity is going to go up because the risk associated with you as an IP is higher. So yeah. even if you go in with that to, to, to negotiate, to say, well, actually, my costs are going to go up because I'm an IP, you know, I, I need to cover that. Yeah. If you're going to go in with that as part of the negotiation, then and then, then that's it. But Sarah is right. At the end of the day, it's a tool. 
But if you're focused on the money, it's probably not the right incentive. Yeah. <laughs> Hope that answers your question, Renan. So. Yeah, there's no, uh, I don't think I have anything to add to, to that. That was very well answered. Thank you both. And I think just uh, one more point to add to one of the points that were mentioned earlier. So we talked about the fact that if you've got your IP qualification, you know, legally we can prescribe in any area, you know, not just the area that we specialized in during the qualification, but be um, aware that, you know, CQC and the GPHC regulators will need to, you know, they can ask for your areas of competency and you need to have a portfolio of competency. And uh, this is an area that we actually discussed. I think uh, two podcasts ago. So if anyone hasn't listened to that and you'd like to know more about that, please uh, do tune into that one as well. But I think today we've discussed uh, quite a bit. Um, you've both given us lots of food for thought. Thank you, Amina, uh, for sharing your um, expertise and insights with us. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's all for now. So we'll wrap up. Um, thank you. And uh, thank you, Sarah, as well. Thank you. It's been great. <laughs>